Afternoon, my name's uh, Graham and I'm responsible for the teaching this afternoon. Um, interesting that, that uh, Sam talked about there's nothing on the notices. Actually, the important bit is not there. The important bit is on the back because it says there, space for your sermon notes. Now, I'm not expecting, we're not going to give you a test or anything like that. But actually, the people who preach are really concerned that the teaching impacts your life. That perhaps you think, well, what did I learn from that? Was there something interesting there? Was there something I didn't understand? Was there something I ought to ask somebody about? Um, is the Lord speaking to me about something? So so please use it, because we don't want to stand up here and uh, entertain you, although for me, I'm a long way from entertaining you, I know. Uh, but uh, it is... It is important. God is speaking to you when we read his word and when the preacher preaches. So please uh, be aware of that. Um, you'll remember, if, uh, for, for the sake of visitors, we'll tell them that we've been going through uh, Matthew's gospel and uh, we reached the dizzy heights of Matthew chapter 7 um, uh, two weeks ago, I think. And then we're into summer, so we do a summer series, and we've gone back to the Beatitudes, which are in chapter 5, because when we did chapter 5, we kind of skipped over these fairly quickly. So we're in chapter 5, and it's a jolly subject today. Uh, Chapter 5 and verse 1, it's on page 968 if you've got a Bible. Now when he saw the crowds, that's Jesus, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples uh, came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we are very grateful for your word. We're very grateful that you choose to speak to us through it, Father. We're grateful that it tells us about a lovely saviour and your beautiful son, the Lord Jesus. And we've just read some of the words that he was teaching his disciples all those years ago. We pray, Heavenly Father, through God the Holy Spirit, that you would speak his words deep into our hearts this, uh, this afternoon, Father. Please bless us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, blessed are those who mourn, we're up to. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Wow. Jesus the King has changed the world. And that means our lives must be changed if we are to live as the people of Jesus 
kingdom. Uh, And Matthew's gospel, it isn't information that invites us to decide what we'll take or what we'll leave. Our job isn't to understand the story that Matthew tells us in light of our view of ourselves and the world. Our job is to understand ourselves and the world in the light of the story that Matthew tells us. Matthew writes his gospel uh, so that our view of ourselves and the world uh, we live in will be completely uh, transformed as we read it. Uh, Matthew writes his gospel so that we might become followers of Jesus, so that we might become disciples of Jesus. Uh, To be a Christian doesn't mean that we are to change the world. Rather, to be a Christian means that we must live as witnesses to our world that God has changed us. And the way that we make God's change in us clear is not just by what we say, but by what we do, how we live. And that's the importance of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount um, is a description of the character and life of the people gathered by Jesus and gathered to Jesus. To be saved from our sin, to be brought into a right relationship with God the Father through the death and resurrection of Jesus is to be gathered to his people and brought into his kingdom. And the Beatitudes are not recommendations. You are not asked to pick one and go out and try, for example, to be poor in spirit or to mourn or to be meek. Jesus is saying that the reality of trusting Jesus as your saviour that his incarnation and life and death and resurrection that bring peace between you, the sinner, and a holy, almighty God, that being born again by the Holy Spirit and being brought into his kingdom, that reality means we shouldn't be surprised that those who follow him are poor in spirit, are people who mourn, are people who are meek, people who are hunger and thirst for after righteousness and so on. So as we think about the Beatitudes over the summer, uh, you need to remember this. All Christians are to be like this. And all Christians are meant to show all of the Beatitude characteristics. It's not pick one and I'll major on that. It's That's what is meant to reflect in all of our lives. And none of the Beatitudes is referring to what we might call natural characteristics. Some of us are naturally meek and mild. That's not what we're talking about. It's not your natural. This is a spiritual thing. God works in our spiritual lives to bring these about. And the Beatitudes hold us up against God's standards for the kingdom so that we can see how ridiculously far short of them we fall and then come to the Father in repentance through Jesus. Last week we thought about the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We said that the kingdom of heaven is the rule and reign of Jesus, God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And there is a now and a not yet kingdom. It's the kingdom of grace now while we are alive on the earth 
and it's a kingdom of glory hereafter. And we don't earn the kingdom of heaven or buy it or deserve it. It's given to us as a free gift of God to those who recognize that they have insufficient spiritual resources. We're poor in spirit. To those who see that they are spiritually bankrupt before a holy God. And this week, we turn to look at the second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Each of the beatitudes opens with this word, blessed. So we need to know, what does it mean to be blessed? If you're a Christian, we need to know that to encourage you in your everyday life with all its joys and with all its troubles. And if you're not a Christian, to make you think about what you don't have. Blessed. To some extent, it does mean happy. But that can't be all that blessed means, because today we're looking at blessed are those who mourn, and happy are the sad seems a bit contradictory, doesn't it? You see, happiness is a subjective state. It's about what I feel. Uh, people who've done well in their exams, yippee, uh, they're happy. Um, I'm losing weight, yippee, I'm very happy. Um, but Jesus isn't talking about how people feel. He's making an objective statement about what God thinks. Blessed, blessed is a positive judgment by God on a person that means God approves me. So when God blesses us, he approves us. Now there's no doubt that God's blessing, it will bring feelings of happiness. And that blessed people are generally happy people. But we must remember that the core idea of blessed is an awareness of approval by God. It's a pronouncement from God of what we actually are. Approved. Blessedness is the smile of God on Christian people. And primarily, Christians are blessed because God is not distant and absent from us. He's near and he's present with us. We experience God's presence and rule and reign in our lives now, and we'll experience it even more at the end of the ages when Jesus comes in glory to gather his people to himself. And I hope that you can see the importance of the spiritual truths of these beatitudes. You see, they tear down our own self-righteousness, any sense that I can please God of myself. They hold us up against God's standards for the kingdom so that I see my need and I turn and flee to him in repentance. There's Jesus. He's taken his disciples up on the mountain. They're expecting some kind of political king to throw out the Romans. And uh, they're a bit shocked. We talked about it last week, didn't they? They're a bit shocked. Blessed are the poor in heaven. They said, what? Who's, what does that mean? Um, and now he gives them another shocking statement. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. There's a close connection between this second beatitude and the first. You see, blessed are the poor in spirit is first and foremost about our minds, our intellect. We begin to understand that we are spiritual beggars before a holy God, but that in his grace he blesses us. 
This second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, is the emotional result that flows from what we recognize with our minds. When God opens our eyes and we see ourselves truly for what we are before God, you see, we can't help but grieve. What does Jesus mean when he says, blessed are those who mourn? Well, there are a few things it doesn't mean. Jesus doesn't mean blessed are grim, cheerless Christians. Blessed are foreboding, gloomy, dismal, depressing Christians. He doesn't mean that at all. Some people think that that's how they should be. But Jesus, you remember we dealt with it in the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, When you fast, don't look sombre as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others that they're fasting. Truly I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you're fasting, but only to your Father in heaven who is unseen. And your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. People shouldn't know. Robert Louis Stevenson, he wrote Treasure Island, he wrote Kidnapped, and he wrote The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He must have known some grim, cheerless Christians in his time. Because he wrote in his diary, I've been to church today and I'm not depressed. Uh, Jesus is not saying, blessed are you if you have a bleak, foreboding disposition. And Jesus isn't saying, blessed are those who are mourning over the difficulties of life. The Bible doesn't say that mourning by itself is a blessed state. We're not talking here about grieving the loss of someone or something we love very dearly. We are talking here about mourning over our sin. As a follower of Jesus, blessedness is rooted in grief. When we see our sinful nature for what it is apart from God's grace, and we begin to mourn over its devastating effect in our lives. The Apostle Paul describes our sinful state in Romans 3. He says this, There's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they don't know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is God's judgment on all human beings without exception. But when in the grace of God we come face to face with our individual sins and our sinful hearts... When we refuse to excuse ourselves, when we see ourselves for what we are, when we call our sin, sin, when the horror and desolation of our sin and sins brings us to the end of ourselves and we grieve and weep, then Jesus draws close and says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There's a picture of this kind of mourning over sin and God bringing comfort in the Old Testament. This is the personal experience of a man called Isaiah. 
In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. One called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongues. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. You see, Isaiah saw the holiness of Almighty God. He saw his own sinful condition, and he mourned. Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips. Did you notice that Isaiah didn't just mourn over his own sin, though that came first? He recognized also that he lived in a sinful and broken world. I live among a people of unclean lips. Christians truly mourn over their own sin, and they do that first. But they mourn also over the power and effects of sin in the world. And if you think about our world, if you just think about what's happened in the world over the last month. What a broken world it is. King David mourned for the sins of the world. He said, my eyes uh, shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Jesus was sinless, but he was deeply grieved by sin and its impact on the world he had made. The Bible tells us that he wept. The shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus Wept. Picture the world as Jesus made it. Adam and Eve, perfect and sinless. The world, perfect, no death. Everything is perfect. And then Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit and God strikes the world with a curse. The physical horrors of that curse, the futility, corruption, violence, disease and death, we see all around us. And they're a vivid picture of the horrors of sin. But Jesus begins to reverse the effects of that curse by turning it into a blessing. Blessing, blessed, approved by God, are those who mourn over sin, their own sin, and the sin that ruins the world. Those who mourn. Mourning isn't popular, you know either in the world, actually, or in the church. Mourning is definitely not in fashion today. I went to a church, and uh, we were dealing with a very sad passage, and I chose a hymn that was a lament. You could tell it was a lament by the music. And man alive, did I get slated for choosing what awful hymn that was. I never chose it again. But uh, so, So even in churches, people don't like mourning. I want to be clear again that joy and happiness and laughter are good and right for Christians. Solomon says there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to weep 
and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. And a church is in a bad way when there's never laughter when it meets, when it thinks that joy belongs to the world and being miserable belongs to the church, when it forgets that the good news of the gospel brings life in all its fullness. Laughter is good. But the world hates sorrow so much that people do everything they can to avoid it. The expectation of these disciples listening to Jesus, the expectation of ourselves actually, is blessed are those who can avoid mourning. Blessed are those who can hang out in places where mourning never touches them. And how do we do that? How do we set up our lives so that we never mourn over our sin? Well, actually, we're pretty good at it. We play, do it by playing the comparison game. I look at someone else, I see their sin, and I say, well, not as bad as them. They should be mourning for their sin, but me, well, I'm okay. And then we maximise entertainment and amusement in attempt to make life one big party. We mock the good news of a dying and resurrected saviour and we make a joke out of sin and death, out of Satan and hell, when actually we ought to weep. Our culture is overdosing on amusement. There's a man called Neil Postman. He wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. He says, we no longer talk to each other, we entertain each other. We don't exchange ideas, we exchange images. We don't argue with propositions, we argue with good looks and celebrity and commercials. I was thinking, actually, we live in a virtual world of Coronation Street and Emmerdale, so-called reality TV shows. And these days, it's Pokemon Go, people... But I don't know what they're doing, but they're wandering around. <laughs> the world thinks that people who mourn over their sin and the state of the world are mad. The world looks at pain and suffering with suspicion. And the church worldwide sometimes behaves much like the world. Some of those false teachers that we dealt with two or three weeks ago say that if we're good Christians, filled with the Spirit... We'll not be sorrowful, we'll not suffer, we'll smile beatifically all the time like the Mona Lisa or Wallace and Gromit, depending how your facial features go. Some ministers won't mention sin in their preaching because it might make their people unhappy. But true Christianity shows itself in what we cry over and what we laugh about. And so often we laugh at the things we should weep over and weep over the things we should laugh about there's a commentator called R. Kent Hughes and he says in matters of spiritual life and health mourning is not optional spiritual mourning is necessary for salvation no one is truly a Christian who has not mourned over his or her sins you cannot be forgiven if you are not sorry for your sins so there's one thing worse than your sin, and that's when you deny it, because that makes God's forgiveness impossible. The saddest thing in life is not a heart that mourns, but a heart that doesn't mourn over its sin. 
Because that's a heart that doesn't know God's grace. Without mourning over our sin, no one receives the comfort of forgiveness and salvation. And God's comforting is the blessing of our mourning. Our ongoing mourning over our sin opens us up to his unspeakable comfort and joy. Jesus says, for they shall be comforted. And we want comfort, don't we? I'm all about comfort. But we believe that we'll be comforted if we avoid thinking about our sin. We believe we'll find comfort by turning our attention to the sin of others or immersing ourselves in the TV or something else. We look for comfort everywhere, but where we should look for it. We excuse ourselves. Now, so often I've said, look, I've messed up, but I'm only human. Do you notice that that beatitude doesn't say, blessed are those who have mourned. It says, blessed are those who mourn, present and continuous. For the follower of Jesus, mourning over our sin should be a daily and continuous practice where again and again we fall on that grace that's brought to us at the cross. Because what is our comfort in our mourning? Surely it's the gospel, the good news that comes to us through the person and the work of Christ. God's comfort for those who mourn, you know, it's immediate. The actual sense of Christ's words are, blessed are the mourners, for they shall be immediately comforted, and they shall continue to be so. And above all, the basis of comfort is forgiveness for sin. Believers are the only people in the whole world who are free from the guilt of their sin. Sometimes we don't behave like it, but we are. And that word they is emphatic. Jesus is saying, blessed are those who mourn, for they and they alone shall be comforted. But our comforting is more than uh, forgiveness. You see, Jesus begins to sanctify us, uh, to make us more like Jesus. Forgiveness is accompanied by changed lives. It's not that we become perfect, but we begin to recognise more and more that our pride and our arrogance and our selfishness and our jealousy and our anger and our lust, they don't bring us lasting joy. Actually, they are the sources of so much of our sorrow and pain. And we recognise that in ourselves and we turn to God in repentance. We turn to him because actually we want to be more like Jesus. And our Father brings comfort from within. He begins to change our lives so that we do begin to be more like Jesus. For they shall be comforted. It's the Last Supper. Jesus washes the disciples' feet and then he begins to teach them about his betrayal, his death and his resurrection. He points them to the future. He's returning to his Father in heaven. And the disciples are confused and upset and Jesus comforts them. He makes them and he makes us a promise. And I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter that may abide with you forever. Jesus promises that we shall be comforted by the comforter. 
God the Holy Spirit, the one who comes alongside the same as Jesus and comforts us. Do you see that God's comfort is personal? God himself draws near to us. He is our companion. He is our friend who is closer than a brother. God comes in person to comfort us in person. God's comfort to those who mourn couldn't be more complete. Today, if you see your sin for the terrible thing that it is, if you're grieving over it, then think about and understand the length and width and height and depth of God's love and comfort for you. And I pray, says Paul, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have power to comprehend the length and width and height and depth of his love and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. When we mourn over our sin, God's comfort is immediate. God's comfort comes to Christians alone. God's comfort comes personally in the person of the Holy Spirit. And God's comfort is based on the forgiveness of our sins. That's why Jesus tells us that we're blessed. We're God approved. And the outcome of our mourning over our sin and the comfort God brings us is twofold. First of all, it results in praise to our Heavenly Father. And it should result in compassion on the people around us who are struggling and mourning over their sin. This is how Paul puts it again. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. So blessed are you, blessed are we, if we mourn, if we experience God's comfort, if we mourn. How do we come to that position? How do we come to mourn over our sin? In the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, the people of Israel gathered together in Jerusalem. Uh, Ezra, the priest, brings the scriptures He stands on a platform and he reads the scriptures aloud over the people from sunrise till midday. And the people listen carefully to God's word. Some religious leaders, they're helping Ezra reading from the scriptures, helping the people to understand what's being read. And uh, Nehemiah, the leader, and Ezra and the Levites had to say to the people... Do not mourn or weep, for the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. What was it that caused this crowd to break down and sob? Was it some phenomenally powerful sermon? No. They were listening simply 
to the reading of God's word. The leaders read out God's word and as God's word is proclaimed to God's people, those who should have been best at obeying it, the people find actually that they're ignorant of God's word, that they'd sinned against a holy God and their hearts are broken because God's word is powerful. God's word has the power to convict us of sin. And God's word has the power to bring us to mourning over our sin. If you want to mourn over your sin, read God's word and read it often. Come to church and listen to God's word being read and explained. Let God show you through his word, through the preaching, the reality of sin and sinfulness. I do want you to understand that God, Jesus isn't asking you to put on some kind of act, to pretend to behave as though you're really upset by your sin when you're not, some kind of useless effort to obtain God's Father, uh, God's favour. You can't do it uh, because he knows. But God's word holds us up against God's standards for the kingdom. God's words help us see our desperate need. God's words help us to mourn over our sin and to turn to him for forgiveness and salvation, for him to gather us to his people and into his kingdom. Jesus told a story that I read earlier. The prodigal son recognised his condition and he mourned over it. In the midst of his misery, he said, I will arise and go to my father. And I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Look around the church. Look at me. None of us have anything at all to commend us to God. All of us here need to mourn because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us continue to sin every day to do and to say those things we really wish we didn't. All of us should mourn over our sin every day so that we can experience the blessing of the Father's comfort. Like the prodigal, all of us should go to our Father and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your child. And the Father will draw near in his love and say, Blessed are you, you who mourn over your sin. I will comfort you. Shall we pray?